you will, to that first chapter of Luke. And in a few moments, we're going to be starting almost verse by verse, looking at the 26th verse. I'll be giving you some of the key words and phrases and then uh, moving into the outline for today. Whether your family has a tradition of opening presents early on Christmas morning or later in the day or perhaps opening one or more on Christmas Eve, this is a time for exchanging gifts. Some families give specific wish lists to each other to ensure getting the right thing. Others leave it to being a surprise. Some are expensive, some are homemade, some are long wished for items, some are more practical, some are gift cards. But one way or another, we love to give and receive gifts. Just a moment, we're going to be looking at that 26th verse starting in Luke chapter 1. But to begin with, we need to see that God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He was not a representative for God. He wasn't a suggestion of what God might be like. Jesus was God. And when we try to understand that, we are bound by the limits of our human understanding. In the very same way, people in the first century had difficulty understanding that as well. Even after Jesus returned to heaven, some of the early Christian believers began to doubt if Jesus really was God. And so the Apostle John dealt with that in his gospel, even beginning with that first verse of, of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the original language, that opening phrase is, in the beginning was logos. And logos is a word that scientists today would simply use the word matter, the essence of something that makes it what it is. What makes an orange an orange? What makes a piece of wood a piece of wood? What makes liquid liquid? In other words, analyzation says Jesus was God himself. But then in the 14th verse of John chapter 1, he says the word was sarx, is the word there, S-A-R-X, sarx. And that is the word for flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the meaning is very simple. God was not some abstract form of energy in the great somewhere out there. God is not just some figurative expression. God is not a vapor or a mist. He is not a, quote, force, as in Star Wars, may the force be with you. God became flesh and blood. And when you put these two together, the essence of God, that which makes him who and what he is, was found in a manger in Bethlehem. Here's your homework for today. Get a piece of paper, take some time, and do some brainstorming, and simply recall as many of the attributes of God that you can. God is love, God is grace, God is mercy, God is power and might, God is justice, God has compassion. That's a start. You make your list. And after you have come up with this list of attributes for God, then go to the pages of the New Testament and begin rereading the stories of Jesus 
in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see where you find those things on your list manifested in the person of Jesus. I believe it'll bless you. And who knows, you just might write that Christian bestseller. God did not send Christ to us. He came to us in Christ. Former Apollo astronaut James Irwin, eighth person to walk on the moon, said it this way, there is something more important than man walking on the moon, and that is God walking on the earth. We need to see some key words in these opening phrases, starting with verse 26 in Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, this is referring to Elizabeth being six months along, carrying another miracle baby, the cousin of Jesus, the one we refer to as John the Baptist. And so we have a real happening to a real person at a real moment in history. Do not ever let anyone try to tell you that the Bible is fiction or that it is a myth or a fairy tale. The Bible is the most heavily, extensively documented piece of literature in the world today. Verse 26 continues. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And here's another specific point referring to a place in history. Now, we do have to admit, though, that the region of Galilee would not have been a politically correct choice. Judea was in the heart of Israel. Galilee was up in the hill country. But more than just a geographic location is the fact that Galilee was considered backward. It was inferior. The people there talked differently. They acted differently. They weren't like us good folks. They were looked down on socially, educationally. Galilee was known for its corruption and its immorality. The disciple Nathaniel bore this out. John recorded it for us in John 1.46 when after learning that the Messiah was Jesus of Nazareth, Nathaniel said, Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Another key word comes in verse 27. The angel was sent to a virgin. Gabriel didn't go to that leading cultural uh, city of Jerusalem. He didn't go seek out those prominent families. Instead, the angel was sent to a small town of Nazareth to select a young peasant girl who was pure and whom God had selected to be the mother of Jesus. Luke uses the word twice in verse 27, uses it again in verse 34. After hearing about what would happen in her life, Mary poses the question, how will this be since I am a virgin? Once again, it simply bears out what the prophet had proclaimed hundreds of years before. Isaiah said in chapter 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will be with child. Verse 27 continues. Pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Mary was about to be married to Joseph, 
who was in that recognized family line of David. But it is made clear throughout Scripture that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. In the Matthew account, starting in chapter 1, where Matthew goes into great detail, listing that family lineage of Jesus. Listen to the summary statement found at the end in verse 16, where he says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus the Christ. The last key word that we have here, highly favored, verse 28. Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. It's a beautiful verse. It is a powerful verse, and it is a personal verse, and it is also a verse that has been misunderstood through the centuries. The word for favored here in verse 28 comes from the Greek word charatu. Charatu is very similar. It's not the same, but it's very similar to the word that we interpret charity, which we interpret then into love. Think of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter in the New Testament. This is a slightly different word. And it is only used here in Luke chapter 1 and in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6 where it's referring to that free gift of God's grace to us. Mary is not being proclaimed as deity or divine in any way. Mary as a baby herself, was not conceived by God, as some would have you believe. That's not the meaning of verse 28. The key to understanding it is in the very next phrase. The Lord is with you. Gabriel is not telling Mary that she is so full of grace that she can now begin to bestow grace on others for the rest of history. That's not what it's saying. Gabriel is telling her that because the Lord is with her, she is favored. It's not because of anything she earned in her own right. Although she was pure, it is because God came to her. She was born with a sinful nature just like every other human being on the face of the earth. But God came to her. And that is what grace is all about for you and me as well. She didn't deserve it, but God's grace came to her. We do not deserve it, but God in his grace comes to us. Look at verse 29. It continues the same thought. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this would be. Why was Mary left in wonderment. Put this in perspective. Look at it and you'll see that this is verse 29. This is two verses before she is told that she's going to have a baby. I believe that Mary was both troubled and amazed because she didn't see herself as someone who was highly favored. She knew about her shortcomings. And that continues that thought of grace. We can apply this to ourselves as well. We do not deserve God's gift of grace, and yet he freely offers it to all who will believe. And it's not only applying to salvation, 
We can also think of God's grace in a very practical way as well. On that same sheet of paper where you're going to do your homework, everyone nod, turn that piece of paper over and amaze yourself by recalling all the ways that God has highly favored you. We come to our outline. Number one, God's gift to us. We're going to look at this gift exchange between God and Mary. We're going to look at some of the qualities of God's gift, and then we're going to see how Mary and how we complete that gift exchange. Number one, the gift is God himself. Verse 32, God in human form. While that conception was a miracle, Mary was going to have a normal pregnancy. She would give birth to a baby boy. Hebrews 2.17 tells us, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Number two, the gift is real and it is personal. Verse 31 says, give him the name of Jesus. The ancient Hebrew name would have been Yeshua. The more modern application of that would have been Joshua. It means Jehovah salvation. Joshua was a popular name in Israel. Many parents wanted their sons to be named after Joshua, that one who led Israel into conquest of the promised land, who took over Canaan, who followed Moses in leadership. Many parents even selected this name for their sons in hopeful expectation that one day he might become the Messiah. You need to understand, though, Jesus did not become the Messiah. It was made clear even before he was born by God himself. Mary's son was set apart because he was the Messiah. And he was named by God himself. In Matthew's gospel, the angel gives clarification of this to Joseph. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name of Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What does that mean for us? Christmas is not just a time for trips and family get-togethers and rest from a work schedule or eating too much good food or getting presents or watching college bowl games. All of these are important. But the reason for Christmas is unmistakably linked to the redemption of sin. Ray Whitney gave us these words. Christmas has its cradle where a baby cried. Did the lantern's shadow show him crucified? Did he foresee darkly his life's willing loss? Christmas has its cradle in Easter as its cross. Christmas has its cradle where that baby cried. In the Easter garden, Christ lay crucified. When death's power was conquered, God's life through him poured. Christmas has its cradle, and Easter has its Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. Sometimes when I read that verse, I want to say, no, no, Brother Paul, I think I've got you beat on that one. There is not a day that goes by that I am not reminded of how undeserving I am. And it is only through God's grace that he comes to me and he comes to you saying, it's okay. I have a gift for you. Number three, it is a great gift. Verse 32, underline that word great there. Here it means more than just a lot, more than just a high number or much. The word that's used for great in verse 32 means mighty beyond measure. Beyond measure. It is incomparable. We don't even have a word to tell how great great is. It echoes back to Psalm 47 verse 2. How awesome is the Lord most high, the great king over all the earth. John Piper said it this way, if you took all the world's greatest thinkers of every country and every century and put them in a room with Jesus, they would close their mouths and listen to him. There is nothing that Jesus cannot do a thousand times better than the person you consider the best in any area of human achievement under the sun. That's great. Jesus would be great in his love and great in his sacrifice. He would live a great life and teach great lessons. He would perform great miracles and heal with great compassion. He would die a great death and be resurrected in great power. One day, One day, he will come again in the greatest glory and the greatest majesty. Number four, God's gift is a powerful gift. Verse 35 says, he will be the son of the most high God. That title, most high, in the Old Testament is El Elyon. And it's a statement of God's surpassing supremacy nothing is higher no being is higher god is sovereign in every way over everything what that means for us is this remind yourself that god is sovereign over anything that might be touching your life right now god will never god will never allow anything to touch your life that he cannot use for your good and for his glory. Starting six months ago, I started giving you a very simple definition of glorifying God. You should know it by now. Making God look good. Whatever you might be dealing with right now in a negative way, anything that you might be challenged with, anything that you might be concerned over, use it to make God look good. Why? Because that's why he allowed it to touch your life in the first place. 
Make God look good. Number five, it is an everlasting gift. Verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The prophet Nathan told King David in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, starting with verse 12, when your days are over, in other words, when you die, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, Nathan wasn't talking about Solomon because earthly kingdoms continued to rise and fall many times over. But Jesus is repeatedly throughout the New Testament referred to as the son of David even by unbelievers. And the kingdom of God will rule and reign forever. Going back to another ancient prophecy, Isaiah said in chapter 9 verse 7 that the son to be born would reign on David's throne forever. In verse 34, key verse, Mary asks, how shall this be? Now make sure we understand, she's not asking whether it's going to be or not. She is simply asking how. The lesson for us is this, when God calls you, don't say no. It's all right to ask how, but don't say no. Verse 35 Gabriel gives her the answer as to how. Number six in your outline. Because it is a holy gift. Verse 36. The holy one to be born will be called the son of God. After pointing Mary to that miracle of life in Elizabeth. Gabriel then gives a verse that every one of us should memorize. Verse 37. The NIV has it as, for no word of God will ever fail. I like that. It's reassuring. It's a good verse. But I have to go back to the King James. For nothing is impossible with God. That word for, for nothing is impossible. Here, Gabriel is simply referring back to everything that he's been telling Mary from the very start. And he's saying, nothing is impossible with God. What does that mean for us today? Some of you today are dealing with some difficult circumstances. Some seemingly impossible things to have to deal with. Do you see what God's gift can bring to your life? You may be in an impossible circumstance or a relationship. You may be worried about grown children or young or old grandchildren. You may be facing a trial. You may be overwhelmed. Nothing is impossible with God. Claim it today. Is something causing you fear or concern? Is something looming out there in front of you? Are you feeling lost or lonely? Are you just so tired? is impossible with God. If God can reach down from the very throne of heaven to touch the life of Mary, 
if God can enter the standpoint of time from eternity where he is timeless, if our infinite God can become an infant child, there is nothing he can't do for you. Claim it today. But we need to complete the exchange. Look at number two in your outlines. Mary's and our response. Mary didn't have much. But what she did have, she gave it to God. Verse 38 represents voluntary servanthood. She said, I am the Lord's servant. A servant had no rights of ownership whatsoever. And Mary is acknowledging that she is the property of God. She belongs to him. I must ask you today, do you completely and totally belong to him? Or are you still holding on to some areas of your life that you're going to stay in control of? And it's a progression. God's ownership leads to our actions. Still in verse 38, we find submissive obedience. She says, may it be to me as you have said. That's commitment. Whatever God wants from her, she's willing to do. Have you said that to God? God, whatever you want from me, that's what I want. Not, well, I will if I have to. Not, I guess I don't have any choice. God, whatever you want for me at this stage in my life, that's what I want. That's what I embrace. That's what I must have. Because with you, nothing is impossible. May it be with me the way you have said. For your homework today, I asked you to, to make that list of God's attributes. Certainly, at the top of that list, I think, would be the word love. I close today with one of my favorite Christmas stories about God's love. At the end of a kindergarten Christmas program, the children were lined up across the stage for their last song. It was a song called Christmas Love. They were all dressed up in their Christmas outfits with their white gloves and their red scarves and their Santa hats. And each child had been given a letter in the title of the song, Christmas Love. And they were to hold up their letter at the right time. And so they began singing, C is for Christmas. And that first child proudly held up her letter. H is for happy, the happiest time of the year. And that letter was held to the perfect height, just like they had practiced it so many times. And it didn't take long for the audience to see down the line a mistake was waiting to happen. A little girl, so excited, singing exuberantly while holding her letter M in the word Christmas, had somehow managed to turn it upside down. Older children in the audience started pointing and whispering and laughing. Soon there was growing laughter. She couldn't understand why so many people in the audience were pointing to her and laughing. And in her embarrassment, she started shifting over just a little bit off to the side. 
teachers and others tried in vain to take control of the situation, but the laughing and the pointing continued and even grew until that last letter of the, of the song was held up and the song ended. And then everyone saw it at once. And a hush fell over the audience when they realized a child's simple mistake was helping them to see Christmas for what it was. Look on the screen. This is what they saw. Do you see it? Christ was love. The Apostle John had much to say in the New Testament about God's love for us. Many in the Christian community are familiar with that beloved verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. I like to think that there is a companion verse to John 3.16. And it's not in the Gospel of John, it's in the letter of John, the epistle of John found at the end of the New Testament just before Jude and Revelation and in 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16, we have this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. At this happy and holy time of the year, even when others may point and laugh and snicker. May we hold our signs high that Christ is love. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for that deep, wonderful, immeasurable love that you showed for us in a tiny child in the manger who grew to become perfect and sinless in his life, pointing us the way to your love, dying for us, and rising again. How we thank you, Father. It is with hearts filled with gratitude today that we say thank you for your wondrous gift. And our Father, our prayer is that you would help us complete that gift exchange by honoring him by the way that we live. May we share that gift with others around us. In your name we ask it.